Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pearce. And I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced at Crawford School. We're the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. Now, today is a very special Policy Forum Pod because we've got a guest here. We are delighted to have join us in the cupboard, Professor Philip Alston. Hello, Philip. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Philip is a professor of law at New York University and is also the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights. He's just put out a report looking at climate change and human rights, and he joins us direct from a public talk he gave about that for the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre here at Crawford School. Now, Philip, your new report looks at climate change and the international response to that threat. You've warned of a climate apartheid where the rich are able to pay their way out of the worst effects of climate change, while the poor suffer the most. Unless things change, what's that going to look like in practice and what sort of timeframes are we talking about? Well, um, I mean, I'm... uh basing myself on the um, climate change science that's out there that uh, tells us that we have very little time uh, at all, uh, really, before these major impacts of climate change are going to kick in. Um, I think we will start to see a lot of areas become less habitable, less productive. Uh, We'll start to see a lot more migration, people being forced within and outside countries to move, uh, and that that is going to really exacerbate all the differences between the way in which the rich and the not-so-rich, we shouldn't really just talk about the poor, are going to fare under climate change. Philip, you've said that climate change remains a marginal issue among the human rights community. Can you tell us who you're thinking of when you talk about the human rights community? Who are those players and why is it that it's still a marginal issue despite the very important human rights implications of climate change? Yes. I mean, first of all, we have to emphasise that the human rights community is a pretty marginal community on its own. It's not uh, you know, the central policymaking apparatus in uh, any government or uh, even internationally. But uh, I was struck when I presented this report to the Human Rights Council uh, a couple of weeks ago and when I arrived in Geneva, uh, the first thing someone said to me is, ah, the European Union is proposing that the uh, annual resolution on climate change at the Human Rights Council should be, quote, biennialized. In other words, it really only needs to be discussed every second year. Um, When you look at that resolution, it's full of the usual sort of UN nonsense you know, calls for more concern, calls for a forum to be held or a 
high-level discussion to be held, but absolutely no real ramifications for what is being done. Uh, the High Commissioner, who's a very uh, thoughtful and progressive person, uh, devoted basically one line out of a, I don't know, a 15-page speech to open the Human Rights Council uh, on climate change. Um, Human Rights Watch doesn't really have a position on climate change. Um, Amnesty International didn't do anything significant until a couple of years ago uh, and they're only just now gearing up. Uh, so the people whose concerns are going to be most dramatically affected, at least on my analysis, because so many rights are going to go backwards very fast, um, have yet to really wake up to the extent of the challenge and the fact that they have to start weighing in. So what more should the human rights community be doing? Well, the first is just to acknowledge the uh, the scale of the challenge. Uh, it remains one of a list of, you know, 30 big human rights issues. You start with women's rights and uh, racism and children's rights and rights of persons with disabilities and then down the end of a very long list you find climate change. Uh, the reality is that climate change is actually a sort of umbrella over all of these. Uh, women are going to be dramatically negatively affected by climate change. Uh, there's going to be a lot more racism. There's going to be you know, whatever problem you identify, it's going to be exacerbated by climate change. Uh, so I think that human rights groups really need to start uh, doing forward-looking analyses of the implications for a whole range of different rights of the um, fallout that climate change is going to bring. Philip, in your report, um, you've, you've drawn on the, the science and the predictions that are available and you've warned that climate change could leave 140 million people essentially homeless and looking for a, another place, a safe place to live around the world by 2050. And yet the world's leaders have struggled to put even very low climate change targets in place and then have often failed to act on those targets. Why do you think there is such a disparity between the research and a very, very large body of research around which there's considerable consensus and the policy outcomes? Uh, I think it's short-term political interest. Uh, it's easier just to ignore the longer-term implications. They can be dealt with by someone else. Uh, I think many political leaders are also responding to the role that uh, corporations have played, the fossil fuel industry, which has lobbied furiously against any sort of serious action. Um, I think there are many reasons why politicians have simply not been prepared to engage. Um, politicians almost never take progressive positions in relation to anything that doesn't affect their own interests very directly. So there's two things that need to be done. One is to uh, really hammer home the point that the sustainability of their businesses and everything that is dear to them really is threatened by climate change. And the second point is that only community activism is really going to change the approach. Uh, we need to turn this into a big political issue. It's not a technical issue any longer. Uh, it's not one that human rights groups are going to resolve. It has to be out on the streets. It has to be um, serious demands for change. 
You've mentioned politicians there and communities. What role does the media play in those those issues that Sharon flagged up there? There's this disconnect between the overwhelming body of evidence and the very poor policy outcomes. The mainstream media has been really dire uh, for the most part. Um, you've got those who are, if one can say it, seriously convinced of the challenge. Uh, so at least in the English-speaking world, you've got The Guardian, you've got The New York Times and a handful of others. And they try to do quite a lot of reporting on climate change, and I think that's important. You've then got the in-between media who should be much more concerned, but um, various uh, leading commentators have said, yeah, but if I talk about the royal wedding or whatever, I get the highest ratings. If I talk about climate change, people turn off. Uh, it's not really of interest. Um, and then, of course, you've got the um, conservative media and climate change has become something of a cultural um, uh, lightning rod uh, in a way. And so the role played by a news corporation, uh, by Rupert Murdoch, by Fox News and others, uh, is particularly pernicious in terms of uh, a constant effort to discredit and uh, underestimate the impact of uh, climate change science. Uh, using very shoddy and uh, totally unconvincing um, analyses in order to refute the strongest scientific evidence. Um, but we shouldn't, of course, just complain. I think one of the challenges is to think how we can change all of this. Obviously, social media has to play an important part. Uh, there was a recent analysis that got quite a lot of publicity uh, a paper done by a group that started comparing, uh, doing analogies. In other words, they came out with the argument that London would have the same temperature as Barcelona in, I think, 2050. And if you read that analysis, what they say is we decided that the only way to get the seriousness of climate change through to people is to engage in visualization you know, you can roll off the statistics endlessly and tell people that they're going to boil to death or whatever, but they don't get it. But if you say, uh, you know, you know London's going to be like Barcelona, they say, oh my God, but it can't be. That's not what we're used to. Uh, and so I think all of us need to start thinking how we can present the facts uh, in such a way that it really does resonate with people and helps mobilization. Now, I want to turn to a topic which we've covered quite a few times on the podcast here, which is Brexit Britain uh, and your report on poverty there and uh, particularly around the implementation of the universal credit welfare scheme. How would you characterize poverty in the UK at the moment? Uh, well, uh, 14 million people living in poverty in one of the world's richest countries. Um one and a half million destitute, uh, uh, according to some of the most authoritative analyses. Um, curiously, though, even those statistics don't capture the depth of the problem in the UK. I think the policies of austerity that have been in place since 2010 and which remain uh, completely entrenched uh, have done enormous damage to the broader 
community spirit to the ability of people to get uh, assistance uh, when they need it. Uh, and it has really started to bring about a very different Britain. Uh, but the you know exponential rise in food bank usage, uh, the rough sleeping, the uh, inability to get social housing, uh, the statistics are dire. The government didn't appoint a special minister for suicide prevention for no reason. Um, I think that... Uh, it's not just poverty narrowly defined. It's really the well-being of a large part of the British population that is seriously uh, at risk under current policies. Philip, in your your report, um, you know you've mapped out just the the depths of despair that many people are facing in the UK. Um, you know, and in, in, in a country with more than half of the children now growing up in poverty. And you've also made the point that the austerity um, that, or the austerity measures that were adopted by the government has inflicted great misery on the people of the UK. How should the UK government have dealt with a post-GFC economy? What should they have done differently to have avoided this great misery that's come about? Uh, first of all, the figure on children is around the 35% mark, in other words, the number of children living in poverty. Uh, but there are pretty strong studies that suggest that that will go up significantly in the next few years. Uh, that, of course, is a tragedy in itself to have a third of your children uh, growing up in poverty with all the deprivation that that involves and all of the loss of human capital and so on. So uh, when the global financial crisis hit, um, various governments took different uh, approaches. As we know in Australia, uh, in the United States, uh, there was essentially an attempt to, um, to uh, pump up the economy, to try to stimulate uh, demand, to help those who were uh, badly affected. The UK took the opposite approach. Uh, and imposed austerity. That was strange because austerity was a notion that had come to be associated with uh, externally imposed um, programs, whether it was the IMF or external creditors or whoever, but the British government uh, voluntarily went into an austerity mode. My argument, though, is that whatever policy option was chosen by the government, uh, the real uh, dimension of austerity was ideological. In other words, it was used as a, uh, a context in which to justify the introduction of classic neoliberal policies where you elevate the importance of work or employment as the only real solution to poverty. You cut benefits you um, expand bureaucratic and other demands to discourage people from applying for benefits. And you generally send the message that you're better off doing a really lousy job that pays very little than trying to get any sort of benefits, even if you suffer from a severe disability or some other major problem. Uh, and I think it's that ideological message that has dominated government policy in this area rather than any form of economic um, need to save money. 
Philip, there's been quite a debate in Australia um, about New Start and the level of that very low allowance that's paid to people. Um, and I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about the context in Australia at the moment and whether we are going down a very similar path of what you found in the United Kingdom. I think there's very little doubt. I mean, if you look at uh, statements that are made by various government ministers, I actually did an analysis uh, a year or two ago of statements by Alan Tudge, who was then the minister. Uh, and in his work, he drew very heavily on the right-wing think tanks from the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, I don't think it's any accident that New Start hasn't been uh, increased at all for 25 years and that you've had something like a 40% drop in the real value of it. I think that is really following the UK model in terms of trying to say if you're on New Start, unemployment benefits, uh, you are soon going to learn that you can't survive. Uh, and one way or another, we will drive you into some form of work. Turning back to the UK, when you were putting that report together, you travelled around some of the worst affected regions of the country and you talked to people who were personally affected by some of the austerity policies that you mentioned there. How did you feel about the stories that you heard from those people suffering? Um, it makes a big difference to um, you know go from the statistics and the dry reports that are the real stuff of policymakers uh, down to the ground and meet people in uh, social housing or in uh, very poor schools or at community meetings in the different uh, places. Um, I think I was very moved. I went to Jaywick, uh, for example, in Essex, which is one of the poorest uh, areas, and heard from a really wide array of uh, people about the sort of lives they were living, the challenges they were facing. And I think that does make a huge difference or big impact in terms of bringing in a life, being able to see actual people describe their suffering. Uh, and there was clearly a sense that they never had the opportunity to make those sort of presentations to government uh, ministers or even to senior bureaucrats. Um, and I think it certainly made a big difference to the way I understood the challenges. When you presented your findings from your study in the UK at the UN Human Rights Council recently, you had four children with you that you had met in Glasgow. What do we learn by listening to children's experiences of poverty um, and not just those experiences they're, as they're recounted by adults, but listening directly to children? Um, yes, I mean, you get a very different perspective. Uh, so children tend to notice the fact that their neighbour um, brings his lunch to school each day when they get a hot lunch that they buy at school. And when the neighbour unrolls his lunch, it consists of a, an apple or uh, even worse uh, they also notice that some kids actually don't have lunch and they will be forced to say, no, no, I'm not hungry. I don't like lunch. Uh, other kids will point out that uh, their peers are very badly dressed. You know, they have really uncool shoes. They have holes in them. Uh, the clothes they wear are completely ill-fitting, all those sorts of things, which seem very petty. But if we go back to our own childhood, 
Um, you know, I remember as a very privileged child, my father was basically a shoe salesman and gave me uh, awful shoes to wear, which he insisted were the latest, etc. And I hated having to wear them to school. But uh, I can just imagine, you know, if all the other kids have sneakers on or whatever and you have to wear uh, a pair of your worn-out sister's shoes, uh, what the humiliation is. So it's these little things that you can really get a better understanding of from kids. It's the little things that destroy children's lives really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. When you put out the draft of your report, the UK... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The government initially hit back at it. Uh, it was called Barely Believable. And they insisted that Britain is one of the happiest places in the world to live. The Work and Pensions Secretary, Amber Rudd, said the report was biased and threatened to lodge a formal complaint with the UN about it. Were you surprised by the strength of the pushback? Well, uh, two things. One, um, strength of pushback is actually a good thing. Uh, it means the report has had an impact. Uh, it's better than being ignored. Uh, secondly, um, no government ever says, uh, oh my God, what a great report. You've really exposed our, uh, our shortcomings and uh, now we see the light. Um, so it's to be expected, I think, that government ministers say, uh, you know, this is not true. It's The situation is very different. But in the end, that formal complaint with the UN didn't come about. Is that correct? Uh, I uh, am not aware of any formal complaint having been lodged. Uh, I suspect that uh, a lot of letters might have been sent to the High Commissioner saying that they weren't happy. But I think the difficulty for the UK government is what they're really going to say. Uh, I think the fact that the report has garnered something like 4,000 different media articles um, around the world um, makes it very difficult for them to simply dismiss it as politicized nonsense, uh, which is what the um, Chancellor of the Exchequer called it. We're about to see a new Prime Minister in the UK, most likely Boris Johnson, we'll know shortly. Um, but UK politics is still going to be dominated by the talk of Brexit for some time to come and probably for years to come. You have said that the UK is screwing itself royally for the future over its Brexit obsession. What do you think, gazing into your crystal ball, is likely to happen under a new Prime Minister? Well, I mean, I think that all the Treasury studies that I was uh, informed of show that Brexit is going to have a very significant economic impact, and that impact will be huge if it's a no-deal uh, impact. Um, my position was that if the British people really decide that they uh, value the independence that they think they'll get from Brexit to the point where they're prepared to give up six, seven, eight percent of GDP, then that's their choice. 
But the tragic thing, of course, is that the uh, people living in poverty, the ones who are going to suffer the most, uh, they'll suffer from the loss of EU funds. Uh, they'll suffer because the government will be under serious uh, pressure to cut back on everything. And there is no planning, as far as I've seen, uh, to uh, address the impact on that group uh, that will clearly come out of Brexit. Just how much of a role do you think poverty in the UK played in the outcome of the Brexit vote to begin with? I mean, there are some very serious studies uh, that suggest that uh, indeed it was people who were the most uh, affected by the policies of austerity who became the most disillusioned and then sort of took that out on the European Union as though that was the cause of their woes. Uh, I think austerity did uh, cause great ill will, great, um, a great sense that government is not useful, is not able to assist people who are really uh, in dire straits. And I think a lot of that then ended up as a protest vote uh, against the European Union in the Brexit referendum. Your UK report isn't the first time that you've taken on governments and indeed incurred their wrath as a result. Um, you've also condemned the Trump administration for uh, the United States policies that have pushed millions of Americans into poverty. Why do we see or why are we currently seeing such punitive social policies in so many countries and in so many wealthy countries? Well, I think we've seen um, more broadly the triumph of neoliberal values. Uh, this has been coming for a very long time since the um, era of Reagan and Thatcher, uh, policies of privatization, the Washington consensus at the international level and so on. Uh, but today, uh, there really is an orthodoxy uh, in propositions like Government should be as small as possible. Uh, taxation rates should be as low as possible. The private sector should be dominant in almost everything, even if it's running prisons or providing social welfare, etc. Um, deregulation uh, is uh, essential. And all of these things sort of come together in a way to reinforce the private power of elites, uh, which in turn dominate the media, dominate politics because of the role of money. Uh, and so we are seeing a, a whole range of policies that have no time for the poor, very little time actually for the middle classes, uh, and are fueling inequality, which as we know is growing rapidly in almost all countries. Now, as always on these podcasts, we reach out to our listeners and ask them to put forward questions that they might like to uh, put to our guests. And we've got one which came from our Facebook group from Liam Hughes, and it's a kind of connected question. And Liam asks, how can welfare systems be designed so that they focus on eliminating poverty rather than entrenching it? Um, <clears throat> well, um I mean, there's no simple answer to that, of course. Uh, there has to be a degree of understanding of why people are in poverty, what they need to get out of it. Uh, there's a classic illustration, I suppose, for me in the US context, where when I toured some of the states, uh, 
I listened to a lot of state politicians telling me that people needed to get out and work and then they would be able to afford medical care. But the solution was certainly not to provide free basic medical care to them. And yet when you meet people, uh, you quickly discover that because they've got they suffer from depression or they've simply got problems with their feet or they've got uh, chronic toothache that is not being addressed, uh, they're not able to go out and work. Uh, so I think a sort of rational analysis will tell you that governments need to provide a basic uh, safety net, if that's the term, although I don't like that. It seems to be too minimalist in most contexts, but uh, to enable people to lift themselves out of poverty, but simply telling them to do so and telling them that there are work opportunities available is not going to do it on its own. One question that uh, comes up on the podcast quite frequently is the role that a basic income could play in supporting people and uh, in the in the welfare state. Where do you stand on on the idea of a basic income, and could that help in any way in addressing poverty? Uh, a basic income is a very seductive uh, notion. Uh, I've actually done a report on uh, on universal basic income uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and the conclusion I reached is that the debate itself is very valuable because it highlights a lot of the challenges that we face. It gets us into these issues relating to the future of work, the implications of automation of robots and artificial intelligence and so on. Uh, and we clearly do need to think about ways of restructuring society and uh, so on. Um, the problem with universal basic income, of course, is affordability. Um, I think that there needs to be a lot more flexibility. I think we need to start with concepts such as a social protection floor, which is uh, a very commonly cited policy that the International Labour Organization and the UN have endorsed um, and that once you've got that in place, one can then start exploring more creative options that might provide a basic income in certain circumstances. But I don't think UBI is a one-off, uh, straightforward solution to the many challenges we face. And we've got to keep in mind that many of its strongest proponents are in fact, putting it forward for totally different reasons. Uh, they simply would see it as a way of eliminating the whole of the welfare state. Uh, in other words, we're not going to provide any sort of assistance or benefits. We're just going to give you a lump sum of money and go away. And of course, that isn't going to deal with the problems that the uh, worst off in our societies face. The dismantling of established welfare states as we're seeing in the UK and and I would argue in Australia, punitive social policies that we've discussed and rising poverty and inequality within many countries, particularly developed countries, are all occurring in a global context of the Sustainable Development Goals, goals that political leaders around the world um, have committed to and reiterate that commitment to. Um, and goal one of the SDGs is ending poverty for everyone, everywhere. Now, some have described the SDGs as a game changer that will make us focus on human well-being and on planetary health. Others have been far more sceptical. How do you see the SDGs contributing 
to some of the issues that we've been talking about, particularly those issues of poverty and rising inequality? Uh, sadly, I'm on both sides of the fence um, in that I can see how the SDGs have great potential. Uh, I'm persuaded by many people I've spoken to that in some countries, in some situations, the SDGs are close to the only game in town, that it's the only context in which you can raise issues like poverty or gender equality or uh, many of the other concerns. But uh, at the same time, I'm increasingly disillusioned by how little is really being done to promote the SDGs. Uh, it's certainly given rise to a huge bureaucratic uh, preoccupation, endless meetings and uh, so on. Uh, but it seems to me that there needs to be a lot more serious focus on both the commitment and most of all the accountability. Uh, accountability is extremely weak. The high-level political forum doesn't really exact any accountability uh, in meaningful terms. Uh, and I think without that, the uh, SDGs are never going to really transform the situation. Finally, Philip, we'd like to turn and look at how and why you do the role you do. Your UN role is unpaid, yet it subjects you to intense criticism. The Daily Mail in the UK mocked your grand job title. They said your report insulted the national intelligence and they called you a loudmouth law professor. I guess at least one of those things is true, which given it's the Daily Mail, maybe they're to be commended for getting one of their facts right. Uh, and in the US, Nikki Haley, the US ambassador to the UN, accused you of political bias and wasting UN money by examining poverty in the US. How do those types of personal attacks affect you? Um, well, uh, they affect me positively. Um, I think the challenge is to act as a catalyst uh, to get attention to these issues and if you get uh, Nikki Haley in response to a letter signed by a large number of prominent U.S. Uh, congressional representatives um, actually being forced to address poverty, uh, I think that's a very good thing. I mean, the consequences are often very bizarre. So the White House Council of Economic Advisers put out a report which said actually – uh, Alston's got it completely wrong. In fact, he uses the wrong statistics. And when we use the, the our preferred stats, we find out that there are almost no poor people at all in the United States. And we're happy to say that the war on poverty that Lyndon Johnson began has now been won and we can stop paying attention to this. But all of that's good because poverty has to be turned into a political issue uh, the thing that I've always hammered on about is that it's a political choice. Uh, we have in our, all of our societies the ability to uh, solve the worst of poverty if we really want to put the resources into it. It's simply that we choose not to. We look away. We want to put money into other things. Phil, we've got a, another question from one of our listeners that's in a similar vein. Um, this one's from Anna Greta Hunter. Um, and she says... What is Phil Polston's approach to the nasty response, both trolls and government? Is it to address directly or to ignore? Um, 
I mean, I engage whenever I possibly can with whoever. Uh, I answer most emails that I get. Uh, some of them are so off the wall and abusive that I don't bother. But uh, if people want to engage, I do. Uh, I made a very big effort to speak to the British ambassador in uh, Geneva. Uh, they wouldn't uh, arrange a meeting for me. Uh, I think engagement is really essential. In your talk that you gave to Crawford School today, you said we need to start calling people out. The gloves need to come off. And you were talking there about the media, you were talking about the governments, particularly in relation to the response to climate change. What does that look like for people? How do they go about that, whether that's academics, whether that's uh, people listening to this podcast? Well, I, I talked in the lecture about the uh, extent to which government-provided research funding in Australia seems to very deliberately shun support for climate change-related projects. Uh, I think that needs to be stated loudly and clearly. Uh, I think uh, it needs to be documented uh, by comparison with the approach adopted in other peer countries that Australia has. Uh, I think we need to start uh, calling out the media, uh, the sort of coverage that we see in the Australian is a disgrace. Uh, it's uh, so propagandistic. It is so uh, intellectually bereft and even dishonest. Uh, I think we need to start saying that rather than saying, well, there are two sides to the coin. Uh, there's what the 97% think and there's what the 3% think and we should pay equal attention to both. Uh, nonsense. Uh, we have to get on and make decisions for the uh, well-being of the community and not be distracted by uh, often commercially driven interests that want to uh, focus on other concerns. Philip, we've got lots of, of listeners of the podcast who are really strongly committed to social issues and, and social justice. Um, and I often see amongst my students this incredible commitment to want to make positive change in the world, but often some hesitancy about how to engage or whether to engage or when to engage, and particularly when to engage in the face of the kind of criticism that we've just been talking about. What's your advice to others who are, are working in similar areas, but may not have the courage of their convictions to speak out as you have, or may feel rather rather reticent or rather nervous about speaking out. What would you say to them? Uh, I totally respect that. I, I don't expect others to be able to speak out in the way that I'm privileged to be able to speak out because I'm not uh, hostage to uh, various forces. Uh, I think we all have to decide what we can do in our own uh, contexts. I think all of us are capable of pushing the envelope. All of us are capable of doing more, certainly on issues like climate change and so on. But what that means in practice is going to vary dramatically from one person to the next. Uh, not everyone can um, uh, you know, take the dramatic political uh, stance, uh, but they will find that in their I don't know, in their activities uh, in the House, they can start being more uh, responsive to the demands of a sustainable environment. Uh, in their community groups, they can put climate change on the list of issues that concern them. Uh, they certainly, in local political context, can start supporting candidates who talk about climate change. 
So I think there are things that we can all do. It's not a matter of uh, being out on the barricades. I'm always struck, particularly with some of our students from from other parts of the world, that in some contexts, speaking out is actually incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous to to you and to your family. And so, for those of us who are in a place where we can speak out, I think it's important that we we make the most of that privilege, as you describe it. And certainly, I've drawn inspiration from the things that you've said today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you, and thank you for joining us on the pod. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. Well, the listeners, I hope you've enjoyed that. We are keen to get your thoughts on all of the things that we've discussed today. Now, the best way to do that is to jump onto our Facebook group with Policy Forum Pod on there uh, and let us know your thoughts. Otherwise, you can hit us up on Twitter where we're at Policy Forum or you can email podcast at policyforum.net. And if you enjoyed today's episode, then don't forget to subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum Pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.